Hi, Anxiety Masters. Welcome back to A Slice of Life, the podcast from anxietymaster.org. My name is Dominic Decker. And today, this podcast, I'm just offering you a reading from one of the PDF downloads, which is available via the Anxiety Master Toolkit. It's a completely free resource, which you can pick up on the homepage at anxietymaster.org. Now, today I want to just cover with you stress, anxiety, the relationship between them, and of course, how these inter interrelate with your well-being. So I'm going to remain fairly loyal to the PDF because this is, as I mentioned, just a, a reading um, of that resource. But of course, if anything else comes to mind, which I think will be of interest, I'll um, briefly digress. All right. So I'm just going to go straight into this. And as always, if you have any questions, you can always reach out to me, dom at anxietymaster.org. I read all my emails personally. And of course, I'll be back in touch with you. So here we go. Everyone feels anxiety from time to time. Likewise, stress, our response to excess pressure, is for many a daily component of modern living. In the face of life's competing demands, few people will get through a week without experiencing some stress or anxious feelings. Defined as a feeling of worry or unease about something with an uncertain outcome, anxiety is a normal part of the human condition. In fact, it's an essential survival mechanism. We all need to experience a degree of anxiety at times. Anxiety propels us to act upon concerns and steer clear of dangerous acts. In other words, it's designed to keep us safe. You may feel anxious before an important event, such as an exam or a job interview, or when you sense some threat or danger, perhaps hearing strange sounds in the night. In these instances, you'd expect to experience some symptoms of anxiety, perhaps sweatiness or racing pulse shallow breathing and a dry mouth, as it helps to alert you and get you ready to act. Transitions in life, even positive ones like getting married or going on holiday or moving home, well these can also invoke feelings of uncertainty. Yet everyday anxiety tends to be occasional, mild and brief. It wanes once action has been taken and the situation has been dealt with. If you suffer with excess anxiety, the frequency, intensity and duration, however, of those symptoms will last longer, up to hours or perhaps even days. There are various forms of anxiety and it can manifest in a range of different ways. So for instance, it might jump out of the blue as paralysing fear, or this is panic attacks, or it might lock your attention with frightening flashbacks, as in post-traumatic stress disorder. It can rear its head in response to specific objects or situations. This is what we call phobias. Or anxiety can creep in and crush personal freedom. This is obsessive compulsive disorder. Equally, and this is probably most common, uh, it can just hang around like a dark grey cloud of worry, essentially what we call generalised anxiety. Now, whatever shape it takes, living with stress and anxiety encourages the avoidance of the very fears that we need to confront. So these conditions are signs that you might be taking on too much or not looking after yourself and not coping as well as you would like to. So whilst this is nothing to be ashamed of, of course, suffering is a limiting way to live with these situations. And this is where we want to start putting things right. So to begin, this guide provides essential information about anxiety and an intervention checklist that, as simple as it is, many people report to be extremely helpful. So I'm going to cover three main sections here. 
number one, just a, a kind of 101 overview of anxiety. And I think for many of us, probably since the whole COVID pandemic, we've become much more educated about what anxiety and stress are and mental health in general. But nevertheless, this is just a, a quick overview to ensure that we're on the same page with our understanding. Then I'm going to talk about the significant link between stress and anxiety. I find that in the conversations I have with people, this is often a little bit misunderstood. And then finally, a practical and actionable anxiety triggers checklist. Before I dive in with this, I just want to share a quick personal message with you, which is this. Suffering with anxiety is not a personal defect, nor does it indicate a flaw. It's not your fault and you're certainly not broken, even though I completely understand it can feel this way. Well, as we'll cover today, anxiety is simply a response to stress and we live in a very stressed world. Anxiety presents as a real and challenging condition where our physiology, this is the way our uh, body kind of interacts, our mindset and our personal experiences become intertwined in a cycle of escalating distress and physical symptoms. However, this cycle can be reversed with the right knowledge, skills and practice in other words, anxiety is treatable and it needn't be a permanent state of life. So while challenging to break through this pattern alone, with the right support and resources, reducing anxiety to make it work in your favour, in fact, is also achievable. So um, if you've got the PDF there, I've also included some links to the Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. So do take a look there for additional help and resources. So let's start then with a quick anxiety overview. Excessive worry can cause real problems. It may develop gradually, starting perhaps with loneliness after losing a loved one or finding it difficult to make new friends when moving somewhere new. It could be experiencing complex life changes because of health problems or feeling loaded down by the weight of life's demands. And for some people, anxiety can develop suddenly, perhaps after they experience some tragedy or disaster such as a fire or a crash or are the victims of violence, or their lives become awash with fear. But this is what we call post-traumatic stress. Anxiety can also take the form of obsessions and compulsions, phobias, or a nagging feeling of foreboding, all of which are attempts to ward off a sense of threat. Yet as we know, some people face such circumstances without becoming overly anxious, while others end up almost crippled by anxiety. So how we explain the adverse events that happen to us has a substantial bearing on whether we're likely to suffer from excessive anxiety. When I talk about this with people, I often like to refer to the radio inside. So we wake up in the morning and we all have a voice when we wake up. It's that kind of internal voice that turns on and we walk around with it for most of our days. Now, there are three particular types of thinking that are especially connected with anxiety and its sibling depression. These are, firstly, how personally you take events. So you might think that everything is your fault or that you didn't get the job because you weren't good enough, rather than because the competition was particularly stiff. Then there's how pervasive you think the effects of certain events will be. So for instance, if you lose your job, you might think everything in the world is going wrong even if other parts of your life are still working well. And then lastly, there's how permanent you think such events will be. So you think that you'll never get another job, partner, dream house, whatever it was for you, and that it's always going to go wrong for you. Well, let's imagine you come to work in the morning and you walk into the office and you go to acknowledge someone, 
but they seem to look the other way or not pay any attention. Now, in that moment, it'd be very easy to take that personally, to assume that we perhaps have done something wrong or that we've done something to upset that person. And of course, what happens here is we start absorbing personal responsibility for what might in fact be someone else's reaction that has nothing to do with us at all. Here, this might become pervasive. It might remind us of a friend that we saw who we waved across the road to, but they didn't wave back. Or perhaps we had a phone call that ended in a slightly funny way the week before. And you can see how quickly just this one situation that could be completely isolated and confined to work suddenly starts reminding us of all these other small social situations or interactions that we've had where things appear to have gone a little bit wrong. It's like a ripple effect that ripples out across the rest of life. And then if we start feeling upset about this, well, we might start thinking, people never understand me. I always feel like people don't pay interest or take care or acknowledge or support me. Or, and before we know it, we could be going years back across the landscape of our life to find further evidence to justify the way that we're feeling. We can see how quickly, if we're not careful and able to quickly confine a situation to its time and place, then we could start to become very stressed in our thinking. Um, Or let's say we become emotionally distressed because we feel upset and then our stressed thinking will start to manifest as a result of this. So if you suffer from excess anxiety, you likely have a lot of negative thoughts running through your mind that you don't even notice. I'll never cope. It's going to be awful. No one likes me. As well as frequently catastrophizing. I'm going to be late. My boss is going to sack me. You can see here how this stressed thinking, as the result of the emotional upset, could probably then start manifesting in stressed behaviour, where we probably end up becoming too quick to conflict with other people or too short or not reacting the way that we'd really like to. And of course, all of this feeds back into emotional distress. It's like a cycle that we can fall into. Now, there's another major cause of anxiety, and that's the what ifs. These projections into the future, which are essentially a negative over-imagination. And we can think of this as a misuse of the imagination. So if anxious, you'd likely spend a lot of time worrying, what if? Coming up with a whole variety of dreadful outcomes for yourself or your loved ones. Now the what ifs are a form of fortune telling. They're hunches yet to happen. So you imagine terrible future things over which you have no control. And it's your imagination working against you. And of course, this constitutes a very stressful business. And stress, moving on to the second section in the resource, is the gateway to anxiety. So to understand anxiety, we first need to understand stress. Anxiety and stress are closely connected in two ways. The first one is that anxiety arises in response to excess stress. And the second relates to the human fear response to a modern world. So let's have a look at these two connections between stress and anxiety. So firstly, as a response to excess stress. So stress is your body's response to anything that requires attention or action. It's nature's way of helping you rise to the tasks or the challenges in front of you. So imagine if you undertake a new challenge, well, let's stay with the job example. So let's imagine that you're starting a new job. Now, at first, you might feel taken out of your comfort zone. There's new names and faces, a different work environment and unknown rules and expectations to comply with. And of course, all of this can probably leave you feeling, at least in the short term, uncertain about how you'll cope. 
I mean, initially it might all feel a bit much because you're kind of in at the deep end. However, if you can rise to the challenge, over time it's going to start feeling good. You know, that initial stress should subside and hopefully you'll be able to look back and feel a sense of achievement about the opening hurdles that you've managed to overcome. But what happens when you can't meet the demands you face? Well, let's say the new boss expects too much and you don't feel appreciated. Your colleagues fail to communicate and they're not supportive. It could be one of those environments of sharp elbows where everyone is just kind of watching their own backs. Now, all of these factors represent stresses. These are kind of events or conditions that may trigger stress because in a sense, you don't feel the degree of control and safety that you might otherwise want to experience. And what's more, you'll likely have your additional stresses on the side. So perhaps you're managing personal relationships or balancing finances, taking care of loved ones, etc. Now, all of this quickly adds up. So when lots of little stresses and some big ones happen in a short period of time, we may lose our ability to cope well. As a result, we can come to feel defeated by all we have to do. And then we lack the drive and the motivation and the energy. And this is stress. And if left untreated, excess stress can develop into anxiety. So suffering anxiety is not in any way a sign of weakness. It's purely a response to stress. Now, just as a quick side note, I think it's so important to understand this because I do suspect that many of us walk around with this sense that kind of showing vulnerability to stress is uh, some form of kind of, you know, weakness or shortcoming. In fact, it's often the case that with the people I meet, um, they're in fact often the strongest ones who can become anxious purely because their ability to take on additional stresses is very, very high. Their capacity for taking on pressure can be extremely high. So for instance, well, let's say it's a teacher or a first responder, like an ambulance driver or a nurse or someone working in um, an environment that might be a little bit difficult. Or it could be someone who's moved overseas and started a new job, but maybe they haven't learned the language or they don't have the sense of community around them. But still, they manage to keep on going. Now, of course, they might have incredible capacity for stress, but at some point, if those different demands and pressures aren't adjusted and addressed, they will at some point start to accumulate and potentially manifest in anxiety. But it's never a sign of weakness is just an indication that we've been carrying too much. That's all. So moving on now to the second connection um, between stress and anxiety, and this is the stress response, which many of us are now familiar with, the, the fight or flight or freeze response. Now, I think since COVID, we had lots of time to stay at home and mental health became a much more, let's say, talked about topic. And so if we talk about fight or flight these days, there's a very good chance that you'll be familiar with this term. But this is just a uh, just a quick kind of refresher, really. So the fight or flight response refers to a reaction that occurs when we confront something that's mentally or physically frightening. Now, throughout history, it's been an invaluable ally to ensure survival. So imagine a scene from the past, um, the life of our ancestors. Life was fragile and full of danger. And survival depended upon being able to react in hostile situations, maybe attack from a wild animal or a neighbouring tribe, perhaps. So in such situations, our ancestors were faced with 
two primary choices. The first was flight, which was running to escape dangerous situations to reach safety. And the second was fight. Um, and this refers to in situations or circumstances in which no escape was possible, battling for their lives in the hope of survival. And then there is also the freeze response, which I haven't mentioned so much here, but essentially this can be in situations where if we're not able to run or we're not able to fight, we might freeze in the hope that the danger will pass. Now, in each case, survival is paramount. So the mental and physical response primes the body to react against danger. So for instance, the pupils dilate, or this is the body preparing for heightened awareness. Dilation of the pupils allows more light into the eyes and results in a better vision of the surroundings. The heart pumps faster to cope with the increased demand that will be made upon it when fighting or running begins. Your muscles may tighten in anticipation of getting ready to flee or face danger. Blood pressure rises to get oxygen to the muscles in preparation for action. Breathing quickens uh, to take in more oxygen and increase our energy level, fueling the muscles to get us moving and our senses sharpen. And this is really in order to identify danger and ways of getting to safety. Interestingly, these are many of the responses that we experience during exercise. So you might even think of a, let's say, for instance, if someone is having a panic attack, it's almost as if they're really having an inappropriate exercise response. Um, now, that's all very well if there's something to fight or something to run away from. But if you're sitting on a bus in a traffic jam or just about to go into a meeting, obviously these physical responses can feel really inappropriate and quite jarring. In fact, distressing, I'd say. So in short term and dangerous situations, we can understand what an excellent system um, our body has for us in order to keep us safe, because it's the body's way of jumping to high alert. And temporarily, nothing else matters as staying alive is priority number one. And then once decisive action has been taken to deal with the threat or the danger has been averted and overcome, the stress turns down and our mind and body can return to normal. But here's the thing. You see, nowadays, the stresses we face are rarely life-threatening. I mean, we can find ourselves in dangerous circumstances, absolutely. However, more often, certainly in, well, the part of the world that I live in, we experience psychological threats. So, for instance, this might be being bullied by colleagues or associates or other people getting things that we want or need. We also experience feeling unsafe. For instance, perhaps we have aggressive neighbours or we fear walking the streets at night or reading and watching the news leaves us feeling unsafe. And we also get that sense of being cornered. Maybe it's impossible work deadlines or upcoming bills that can't be paid or that we're just running out of time and everything's on top of us. And equally, it could just be that phone in our pocket or at our side that doesn't stop ringing and nagging for attention. Now, the primitive part of your brain that activates the fight or flight response isn't very advanced. So as a result, it can't discern between actual life-threatening events and the psychological threats that we more commonly face today. In addition, this ancient evolutionary defence mechanism isn't very good at separating perceived threats and real-life threats. So for instance, if you say to yourself just before a talk, I'll die if I have to stand up and talk. Well, the anticipation of danger can easily trigger the fight or flight response. And here, your body and mind will respond to the danger of death. 
Now, completely rationally, this is going to be panic. So quite literally, we can imagine our way into a state of panic. But of course, when it's all in the mind, where do you run or who do you fight? So from that perspective, the fight or flight response is an ill-adapted tool for most modern day scenarios. And it's a powerful, crude and overwhelming reaction to moderate fear, um, a disparity that can cause a, a frightening and unsettling experience. And this brings us to the smoke alarm concept. So what's more, even though the physical response to stressful events will eventually dial down, an expectation that something should or is about to happen remains switched on. In other words, you stay in a heightened state of vigilance, like an overly sensitive smoke alarm, ready to ring without good reason. And over time, this leads to an excess of arousal in the brain, a constant state of readiness. And it's here that rest or relaxation become difficult, or you might be easily distracted or absent-minded and you find it hard to settle down to things. Well, living in a constant state of caution is really exhausting. And if you experience that, my heart and understanding is absolutely with you because this in itself will generate more stress. And it's little wonder that people experience unwelcome effects from such arousal, whether it's headaches or sleepless nights and skin eruptions, turning to alcohol as a means to get by. Back in my 20s, I was working as a teacher in East London and I remember I had my NQT year, which is what you call your newly qualified teacher's year. And I have to say it was probably one of the most stressful years of my life. In fact, it was probably that year that I really came to understand professional stress more than any other time. And if I could characterise it, I would say it's feeling responsible for things beyond your control. And every single day, working as a primary school teacher with 30 children in a classroom, I felt very responsible for things beyond my control. And of course, my sleep suffered and I came out with a big rash on my face and I had terrible headaches. And then naturally, I'd come home with a big pile of books to mark. And probably at about eight or nine o'clock, I'd look at a glass of red wine and think, I think I need that to decompress. And you can imagine how quickly that cycle can start to deteriorate. I don't know why I mentioned that really, probably just to share with you that I understand the experience of stress. Um, but of course, something that I've come to understand as well now, as well as this, is that it's not necessarily circumstances that generate the stress. It's more our response. Now, in that situation I found myself in, which is what I might refer to as a toxic environment, the response or the correct response was actually to get out of that environment because I could see it wasn't going to change. And it wasn't doing my health any good. But it's often the case that people assume that if they just stay longer or if they just get better or if they just take a little bit more on, then perhaps things will start to improve. But just a, just a mild warning that that's not necessarily the case if the circumstances you find yourself in are toxic. It might be, at least on some occasions, that we need to change our environment in order to calm ourselves back down again. So all of those things I've mentioned there the rashes and the sleeplessness and headaches and whatnot. Well, these are all really just signs. They're symptoms and, and signs that you've been pushed too far. And if this stress is left unchecked, then this can become the gateway to an anxiety disorder. So a quick recap on where we're up to. Um, a degree of anxiety is normal, first and foremost. It's nature's way of keeping you safe. The way you talk to yourself can heighten or lower your anxiety. 
this is the what ifs, for instance, or the uh, explanatory styles, the personal, pervasive and permanent way um, of talking to ourselves through our internal radio station. And stress and anxiety are closely connected in two ways. The first one is that anxiety arises in response to excess stress, which is really a mismatch between the demands we face and our resources and ability to cope. And the second relates to the human fear response to a modern world. And just to outline again, or just to underline rather, anxiety is not a sign of weakness. It's simply a response to stress. Now, while stress arises in response to life's steep challenges, stress can also manifest as a result of simple physical imbalances. And frequently, simple physical adjustments can have a profound impact on the experience of stress and anxiety. I first came across a physical triggers checklist in the excellent book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. So my gratitude to the author, who is Dr. Ellen Vora, for sharing this with us. So to finish off this overview of the of the PDF, which just to mention again, if you haven't got a copy of it, please do head across to anxietymaster.org and download your free toolkit. You'll find it there. Uh, let's move on and have a look at this physical triggers checklist. So as we've explored, anxiety manifests in response to various triggers, often intertwining with our daily stresses. However, not all feelings of anxiety are rooted in physiological stress. Sometimes they may arise from physical states or conditions. So it's important to distinguish between anxiety triggered by external stresses. This is often where we face you know, steep life challenges in which anxiety is really indicating to us that something is wrong and attempting to give us a message that we need to address something or that we need to make changes in order to put us back in our locus of control. It's important to distinguish between anxiety that's triggered by these external stresses and that which may stem or at least in part be aided by physical causes. Because it's surprising, in fact, how often anxiety is just the simple response to some physical imbalances that we might be experiencing. So the following false anxiety inventory aims to shed light on some common physical triggers that can precipitate feelings of stress and worry. So by pausing in the midst of turmoil and running through the following questions, we can identify specific physical stress triggers and then take action to remedy them. So let's finish off with a few questions from this inventory. I'm anxious and I don't know why. Am I hungry? Okay, I'll eat something. Is sugar crashing or am I having a chemical come down? Hmm, did I just eat something sweet or processed or maybe laden with preservatives? I'll have a snack and focus on different choices next time. Am I overcaffeinated? Perhaps this jittery anxiety is really caffeine sensitivity, so I'll drink less caffeine tomorrow. Am I undercaffeinated? Well, I drank less caffeine today than usual, so I'll dose up and aim for consistent caffeine consumption. Am I tired? I'll take a nap if I can, and I'll certainly prioritise an earlier bedtime tonight. Am I dehydrated? I'll drink some water. Am I feeling sluggish? Right, I'll take a walk outside or dance or just get some movement of some description. Do I feel a bit sort of dysregulated? Or did I just disappear down an online rabbit hole? Okay, I'm going to dance or go outside to reset my nervous system. Am I drunk or hungover? I'm going to file this feeling away 
and use it to help me inform better choices for next time. Am I due a dose of medication? Well, right before the next dose, I'm at that nadir and this can affect my mood. So maybe it's time to take my medication. Just running through that simple inventory can, in many instances, not all of course, but in many instances, can help us to take a quick and effective action in order to put ourselves back in control and start feeling better again. Okay, that's all for today. I hope that was useful for you. And if you did enjoy this, you might also like my seven day stress reduction course, which is again, entirely free, comes with emails and resources and uh, listenings for seven days to help you feel calm and confident. So if you haven't picked that up already, head over to anxietymaster.org and you'll find it there. Take care and I'll be back next week.